Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Kendall tonight. And our topic is the Gate of Heaven, Part 2. And we'll be talking specifically about humility. Uh, let me set this up a little bit, if I may. The, um, uh, we've been thinking about that command, that thing that's present in the prayer, that, you know, as in heaven, so on the earth. How does the earth get more like heaven? How do these two connect together? And we talked last time about the story of Jacob's ladder as an image of how earth connects with heaven. And that had to do with thoughts. If we're thinking thoughts that are like the thoughts that angels have when they read the word, then we can connect together. One of the astounding things that Swedenborg says, uh, I don't know if I ever would have had this idea uh, without it, I'm not sure, but um, is that angels read scripture. You know, I mean, to me, you could easily think, uh, this is a book, this is like a human thing that just developed at some point. So we have this book with stuff in it. But of course, when you're an angel, you're beyond all that. You're in the, in the light and you see the beauty all around you. You know, why do you need to read in a book or something? And, and, uh, but Swedenborg says that the word is actually, the Bible is something that is built to connect this world and heaven but it doesn't automatically do that. There are certain attitudes towards Scripture that help us. One is what we talked about last time, to, have, to think heaven-like thoughts, think in terms of correspondences and to have some understanding of genuine truth as we're reading. Tonight I want to talk about an attitude, and particularly the attitude of humility as we read. Uh, when I was uh, younger, I used to love to go out in the woods and my friends and I would sort of walk through the woods and I, I always had this feeling that, you know, gosh, there's no wildlife in the woods. It's, it's no, there's no deer, there's no animals, you never see a raccoon or anything like that. And then uh, I went to a tracker school and they taught you how to be still and be quiet in the woods. <laughs> uh, it turned out my crashing through talking to my <laughs> friends was actually driving the animals away. I didn't realize. I just thought, wow, there's no animals around here. When you get really still and quiet, you start to be able to see the, the wildlife. You actually can, can see what's going on without you in the picture kind of thing. And I actually think the word is a little bit this way too, that the more quiet we can be, uh, we, we see more. It, it opens up to us more. So if you'd like to come on that journey with us tonight, let's start with a prayer. Shall we, friends? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the Word made flesh. We thank you for bringing us together in your name. We pray for your presence among us tonight, Lord. Open up the pages of your Word. Teach us who you are and who you wish us to be, how you wish us to live. Amen. Sending love to those of you who are out there online and getting the audio and on the phone from Canada. Thank the Lord and those of you who are here in the room. It's a blessing to be with you. And uh, so humility. Um, I don't know how you feel, friends. I feel a little bit like in this world, I, I think there was a time in the past when humility was considered to be a virtue. Um, <laughs> I feel a little bit like it's gone out of style. I don't know. You know, there's just a lot in our culture that celebrates, uh, uh, you know, pride, best foot forward and go, you know, and of course there's a place for that. Uh, but uh, humility 
uh, is a really important quality. There are two reasons I see why it's good to read the Word with humility. And I find the Bible a very humbling text. I mean, the fact that you can never understand a single thing it says is humbling, I would say. <laughs> and secondly, uh, so you see more in the Word when you approach it from a humble standpoint. Think just like you do in the woods. But um, it's also good for another reason, which is that, as Swedenborg says, heaven's attitude is one of tremendous humility. If we're trying to connect with heaven, and as you may have heard me say last time, um, if heaven and earth are having difficulty getting together, I don't think heaven's the one with a problem. Um, I heard a, a sort of a joke years ago, I, you know, uh, there's a, a husband and wife riding along in a truck and the woman's over by the passenger door and the, the guy's at the steering wheel and, and she says, gosh, honey, we used to ride up so close together back in the day and, you know, so, so cute. And he, for, for, you know, listened to this for a while and he finally said, I ain't moved. <laughs> um, you know, that's sort of us in heaven, like heaven is the driver, we're the passenger, we're bemoaning the fact that we don't have the relationship we used to have. Heaven's right where it was. It, we're the ones who kind of shuffled over toward the door like we want to, want to bail, you know. And um, that's uh, heaven's attitude is one of humility. So if we can adopt that humility, not only do we see more in the word, but we're more in the attitude that the angels are in. Swedenborg even says at one point, that the angels, uh, there are clouds in heaven that you see in heaven, and those clouds are there when groups of angels don't understand what Scripture means. They, they have clouds over them. Now that amazed me, and in one way it sort of depressed me to think, oh wow, we're still going to be wrestling with this in the other world. But in another way, it seemed wonderfully realistic that, uh, no, it's of infinite depth, and you still hit points at which, I get this, I get that, but what is this, what is this doing? I don't get it. And then when it gets cleared up for them, the clouds disappear, the sun comes out, and everything. That, that cycle keeps on happening. Um, the story that came to mind to read about this, uh, and again, I want to say what I said last week, which is that... Um, See, it says that Jesus is the Word made flesh, and everything in Scripture is about the Lord. You see that in Luke 24. And so uh, the Lord is the Word, so everything in the Word is also about the Word. It sounds strange to say that, but all these stories can be read as having something to say about our relationship to the Word, how the Word works. So let's look at another fun, popular story. Let's go to the Old Testament to 2 Kings chapter 6. This is the horses and chariots of fire. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, and let's pick up at verse 8. <clears throat> now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in in such and such a place. Okay, so the king of Syria, you have enemies here. King of Syria is against Israel, and the king of Syria is meeting with his own privy council or whatever it is, you know, his own, own private counselors, and saying, okay, I'm going to move, you know, here's my maneuver. You know, you're in the war room, you're figuring out wh where you're going to move. This is where I'm going to put my camp. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, 
Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Okay, so the man of God, who is Elisha, who's a prophet, would communicate with the king of Israel, and he'd said, uh, better not take that road because the Syrians are all going to be there. <laughs> right? Go on. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Yes, it's nice that the king of Israel felt like, well, I want to verify. I mean, maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong. But then when he finds time and again, oh, they really were there. That's right. They were all amassed there getting ready to attack. Oh, look at that. They were over here. He was right. So how did the king of Syria react to this situation? Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. Mm. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? So you get what's going on there, obviously. He thinks that one of his servants is a traitor. He's got this council of the people who are just in the you know, circle of trust or whatever. And uh, so which of you is an enemy spy and is ratting out to the, the king of Israel and telling him what to do? And his servant says an amazing, one of his servants says an amazing thing. And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Now, that's really amazing. Now, several things are amazing about that. First of all, it's amazing that Elisha knows exactly what's going on. Like that secret plan, has no, it's as if he just gets the memo, it's as if he's right in the room. So he tells the king of Israel exactly what's going on. But the other thing is kind of interesting. The king of Syria had no idea about this. But this servant, how did this servant know? This servant knew exactly what was going on. Right? I mean, it's kind of a tricky thing to know that, well, I happen to know, Your Majesty, <laughs> that Elisha has this direct connection to God and God tells him everything you say in your bedchamber. How, it's interesting. How does he know that? And one of the reasons I'm looking at this story about servants is that I think a servant is a, is a humble position. There's a humility. And here's this person who's in this humble position, and this person knows the truth about what's going on in an enemy camp. He knows Elisha's name. He knows exactly what's going on, what kind of connection he has with God, and how the whole thing works. How does he know? It's amazing. This, this servant has amazing clarity. Go on. So he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and get him. Yes. And it was get him is, you know, just mean bring him here or do you mean <laughs> get him? And yes, right. Okay. And it was told him saying, surely he is in Dothan. Therefore, he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. Okay. Now this image is very important. They came not only with soldiers. It would have been very intimidating to have a bunch of soldiers. But soldiers on horses are much more powerful and with horses and chariots and the whole, you know, it's a very mighty army. For one person, for this man of God, you know, try to stop this man of God who's ruining your whole thing that you're doing with your country. Uh, he sends this massive, and by night, they all come by night, they surround the city, horses and chariots and a huge army. And so we had one servant in Syria 
so now we have a story of another servant. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Now this servant is a little more intimidated, but he, but he sees what's going on. He gets up early, right? Isn't that what it said? He gets up early in the morning, he goes out, and whoa, he's the first one up. The servant, often the first one up. And wham, this army, all, you know, very uh, intimidating. And so he says, alas, my master, what should we do? And how did Elisha respond? So he answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Mm. Okay, those who are with us. Now, I don't know (laughs) how many, you know, fingers you have handy, good friends, but if you want to put a finger in here, I just want to turn, I want to come back here, but let's turn to 2 Chronicles 32. So turn to the right and you go through 1 Chronicles to 2 Chronicles. I want to go to 32 because there was passages that this reminded me of. You know, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. It's an absolutely absurd statement on the face of it because there's like Elisha and his servant. You know, there's two of them versus the entire or a huge army, Syrian army with horses and chariots. And yet he's saying, oh, we don't worry. We outnumber them. Uh, look at Second Chronicles 32, uh, verse 7 and 8. This is something that Hezekiah said about when the Assyrians were about to attack. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. Mm. And what does he mean by that? There's more, you know, how can you say that? There's more with us than with him. What is he talking about? And then I love this phrase. Listen to this. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Mm. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Yes, strengthened by those words. So you might feel like a small group. You've got the mighty empire, the Assyrian empire, and here's this huge army. And <clears throat> what an amazing statement, isn't it? With him, why, well, how do you say we outnumber him? Oh, he's only working with flesh. All he's got is like weapons, horses, chariots, you know. That's all he's got. But... What we've got is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. So we way outnumber him. doesn't matter how many of us there are in the flesh. And uh, also it's reminiscent of this statement all the way. Let's see, how do we find this? Go all the way to the back to the book of Revelation. And then back up through Jude to John. I want to go to 1 John. Uh, where do I want to go? Four, I think, verse four, don't I? Yes. First John four, verse four. Yes. You and it's been talking about spirits. Every fe- spirit that confesses not Jesus Christ, uh, so on. You know, so it's talking about spirits, who the them are. Go ahead. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Yes. See what I'm saying? Same kind of message, right? Uh, So how are people able to overcome spirits? Oh, that's because the Lord is on their side. 
And so, you know, he that's in you is greater than he that's in, in the world. Um, good, good. Let's go back to 2 Kings 6. So, you know, I love reading scripture that way because doesn't it kind of give you an idea? Like this just says, oh, there's more, you know. But those other passages really shed the light that uh, it's about the fact that the Lord is on your side. There's something spiritual helping out. It's not just the worldly weapons and so on that you're facing. So verse 17 here, 2 Kings six seventeen. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Mm. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. It's interesting that it says around Elisha. You know, I always picture the mountains sort of off at a distance around there, but it's quite explicit in the text that they're around Elisha. They, you know, they're around, they're up on the mountains, but they're around Elisha. And this opening of the eyes, you know, uh, Swedenborg likens this to opening, having your spiritual eyes opened. You know, open his eyes that he may see. It's a prayer to the Lord. And he opens, his, uh, the Lord opens the eyes of the young man and he sees that the mountain is full of horses and chariots, vastly outnumbering the Syrians and on a whole different level. They're on the mountain. You know, in warfare, it's always, if you have the high ground or something, like you, it's stronger than sort of fighting uphill or something. And uh, let's just read, there's lots more to the story, but let's just read verse 18. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Interesting. <clears throat> so as it turned out, like, how did Elisha win? Did he need all those... Angel, was it like, a, okay, we had two chariots to every one of theirs? No, strike him blind, game over. So it seems on the face of it like he didn't even need, it was like it was easy, like he, he had no problem. And it's very cute what happens. They, they lead them out and they say, oh, no, this isn't the way. And they lead them out into the wilderness and say, no, it's not here. Oh, is it? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, it's over here. And then he opens their eyes eventually. And, uh, and then they, he gives them a nice feast. Out in the, uh, you know, out in the wilderness, treats them to a good, nice dinner, and then sends them on their way. <laughs> so, and it says at the end of verse 23, what does it say in your translation, dear reader? Um, verse 23, then he prepared a great feast for them, and after they ate and drank, he sent them away, and they went to their master. So the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. Yeah. That was it. That's a good trick, too. Not only one, but one for all time. Not a situation. You know, like it's so humbling to be taken out in the wilderness and told this little story about, and may, oh, maybe it's over here. Okay, come on, this way. Oh, I think I know where he is. Oh, and then suddenly revealed, hey, that's me. I'll give you a nice dinner. Don't bother us anymore, okay? You know, and send them on their way. And they don't. They don't bother them anymore. Though it's a great, great, well-loved story. So why do I think this has anything to do with the Word? Well, uh, one reason I think it has something to do with the Word, 
And I'll try to explain to you, good friends, what I see in here uh, and what Swedenborg explains about it. Um, Elisha, these prophets, Swedenborg says that all those prophets, Elijah, Elisha, also Moses, John the Baptist, people like that, they all uh, represent the Lord as to the word, is Swedenborg's kind of phrase. The Lord in his role as the word. You know, uh, that's what these prophets correspond to. So the prophet has something to do with the word. And uh, the, the way that I'm feeling led to read scripture lately, all these scenes are scenes like script. You can see this is, this is scripture. Okay, so I think of uh, the servant, the man of God's servant is basically us. And I think he's us in a humble state. Doesn't the text say that he's young? He's frightened, he's intimidated. Uh, he rises up early. He's the first one out there. You know, I think these are all good things. Like he's approaching scripture from a point of view of humility. What the Syrians mean, Swedenborg explains, is that the Syrians, he, he, Swedenborg says great stuff about Syria, that it was the place of the ancient church from long ago. Uh, that's where the prophet Balaam came from and the wise men from the east and all this. And, uh, but, so it's a place of knowledge uh, of these sacred things, but over time it's been inverted. It's become a, a false knowledge, a, a misinterpretation, you know, coming out of some kind of long-standing tradition to misinterpret scripture. So can you imagine yourself in a situation where you're venturing forth into scripture and you suddenly find this army of other interpretations, all saying, it's not what you think. It's like this. It's like that. It's faith alone. It's salvation. You know, here's, here's the whole. And they've got all the reasoning. They've got the horses. They've got the chariots. Horses, uh, horses have to do with uh, our understanding. I've got one passage to show you about that. Let's go to that passage now. Second Kings, turn to the right. Go through First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. Get to Job. I want to go to Job 39. If you get to the Psalms, you've gone too far right. Go to Job 39 toward the end there. And uh, there's a very interesting passage. Swedenborg says that Job is full of uh, correspondences. It's an ancient book of the word. Job 39, verses 17 and 18. Listen to this. Because God deprived her of wisdom and did not endow her with understanding. When she lifts herself on high, she scorns the horse and its rider. Oh, now see, I think wisdom is the rider and understanding is the horse. You see what I'm saying? Because God deprived her of wisdom and has not imparted to her understanding, wisdom, understanding. Therefore, she scorned both the horse, the understanding, and his rider, which is wisdom. Does wisdom ride on your understanding. Don't you develop an understanding of something, like if you're learning a trade or something like that, you develop an understanding of it, and then your wisdom rides on that understanding that you've gained of it, right? 
the horse has to do with this understanding and the rider is wisdom. Um, uh, so there's lots of other horse passages and they're just wonderful. Uh, one that would be very important to read, if you don't mind going back to 2 Kings, go to the left, go back to 2 Kings. Very important story. This is when Elisha really takes over as the main prophet. You may remember this story. Let's look at 2 Kings chapter 2 and go to verses 9 to 12. It's, a, it's a 9 to 11, 9, 9 to 12. Uh, there's a whole story of how Elisha's following Elijah. Elijah's about to die, and Elisha is still following him. Elijah keeps telling him, you can turn back now. And Elisha says, I'm not leaving, I'm not leaving. And uh, they, they cross over these various rivers and waters and the Jordan and everything. And uh, look at verse 9 there. And so it was, when they had crossed over, that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. All the way when they were going there, people were telling him, other prophets were coming. You know Elijah's dying today, right? You know, you know this is his death day. It's very clear in the scripture that he's about to die, pass on to the spiritual world. And so he says, anything you want. And he says, oh, just a double portion of how amazing you are. You know, that's, is that too much to ask? Okay, and uh, verse 10, how does Elijah react? So he said, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Mm. It's kind of cool in a way. You know, if you see me go up, then you've got it. If not, not. Too, too bad. What can we do? So go on. Then it happened, as they continued on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire. Oh, Chariot of fire. Now, it's even more, when you saw the other one, it said horses and chariots of fire. You didn't know if they were horses of fire or just horses and chariots of fire. But here it's very clear, isn't it? A chariot of fire and horses of fire. Whatever that means, they're both fiery, right? Made of fire, surrounded by fire, something like that. Okay, go on. Uh, a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. Mm. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha said what we would all say in that circumstance. And Elisha saw it, and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. Mm, go on. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Mm. Then, then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had struck the water, it was divided this way and that, and Elisha crossed over. Yes, and so Elisha has received the double power. He's able, the mantle you know, literally just falls on him. That's where, where this expression comes from. And the, um, he's, he strikes the waters and they part and he goes over on the dry land, just like the children of Israel when they originally came into the land. So interesting that he says, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen is what he comments on. 
their chariots of fire, horses of fire, and Elijah's taken up on these things. And all of this has to do with the word. So I think what's going on here is that a horse means, and this is, I'm leaning heavily on Swedenborg here, that a horse means our understanding of the word. Like, you can read the word till you're blue in the face, and we often do, don't we, good friends, and not understand what you're reading. Uh, it's one thing, and you remember where, you know, there are various different visions where you see four horses and that kind of thing, and some of them are healthy, some of them are unhealthy. You know, those are different understandings of the word. Did you understand it well or poorly? Did you take it this way or that way? You know, how alive was your reading of Scripture? So the horse has to do with, and what would a horse of fire be? Hmm. What does fire mean, Sweden? Fire? Anybody? Love. 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 Oh, right. So a horse of fire would be an understanding that Scripture is all about love. It's easy not to have a fire horse when you're reading Scripture, like you can interpret it to be yelling, angry, judgmental. You did wrong. You're no good, you know. It's easy to understand it not as being about love. Lots of people have read the whole text and said, oh, this is all about faith. These are the truths of faith. You have to understand this and you have to know this and you have to think that, and that's what it's all about. That's not a horse of fire. A horse of fire is an understanding that it's all about love. It's about the doing of good and that love is primary in the text. That's the best kind of understanding. So Elijah, who represents... The Lord, as to the word, rides up on this understanding that it's all about love. That's the horse of fire. What is the chariot of fire then? Well, the chariot's pulled by the horse. The chariot means, in the old language, doctrine. It means teachings. It's a body of teachings. Like you have the horse, which is a living thing. That's your understanding of the word. The chariot is an inanimate object that's the teaching that's drawn out of that. You, here's my understanding. You know, I got this understanding and it's pulling this body of teaching. This is how I understand it. So what is a chariot of fire? It's teachings that understand Scripture's all about love. It's all about the Lord's love for the salvation of the whole human race. It's all about love for each other. It's all about the doing of good. It's all about going from hell to heaven. Heaven is a whole world of love, mutual love, love of the neighbor, love of God, and all that. And um, so... Horses of fire and chariots of fire is an understanding that the word is all about love and a body of teachings that also reflects that same understanding. That's what the horses and chariots of fire are. Okay, and that's why Elisha, who also means the Lord as the word, comments on the chariots and the horse. You know, that's it. That's the right understanding. That's the right, you know, teaching. That's it. He, he, can, he can see it as Elijah's lifted up and this mantle falls down. And he takes that up and is, is more powerful than ever. Okay. Um, all right. Oh, let's look just randomly. Can you turn to the New Testament, good friends? I want to go through the four Gospels and Acts through Romans to Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10. Let's read verses 3 and 4. 
thinking about this story. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Yes, very important statement that we may walk in the flesh. We may be here in the flesh, but we don't war according to the flesh. What do they say? Oh, there's more with us than with them because God, you know, like his arm is flesh. He used the same word, didn't it? You know, his arm is flesh. That's what he's depending on is flesh. But we've got something divine. So though we walk after the flesh, we don't war that same way. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not carnal. Very interesting statement. The weapons that we use. What was the weapon that Elisha used? It wasn't carnal. He didn't shoot arrows at them or throw stones at them or something. He, he struck them blind, which was a spiritual kind of thing. It even seems like they could still kind of physically see, but they couldn't scan what they were seeing or something because he said, oh, no, that's not him. Here, I'll take you over here. It's like he was disguised or something. And mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. Uh, this is what the Lord wants to do with the world, is to, with the word, is to pull down these strongholds of hell. Okay, um, I guess the last thing I want to do uh, before we really get into the meat of this is just read a few more scriptures and then I'll disquisit. Is that a verb? Do you disquisit? I don't know. Uh, let's go to the Old Testament. <laughs> Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. The fourth book of the Old Testament, I want to go to Numbers chapter 3, chapter 12, I'm sorry, Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. And um, you tend to think, I mean, angels don't come across in Scripture as humble, do they? They're like in their awe and majesty and announcing, you know, the Lord is born or something, you know, they're... They're all awesome. You don't, you know, there's an interesting kind of humility uh, in our world where you could still be, you could be coming across as very humble, but still it's totally self-involved and self-centered. Do you know what I mean? Oh, don't mind me. I'll just sit over here in the corner and, uh, you know, or something. Uh, but it's still all about you. But angels seem to have a different kind of humility that is just like, get the message out. It's not about me. It's a message. It's about the Lord. You know, isn't this an interesting statement in Numbers 12, verse 3? Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. Now you would not know that. If I hadn't been told that by Scripture, I wouldn't pick Moses for a humble guy. He said, the, the God has said, and thou shalt not, and, you know, and he's leading everybody and raging against the people half the time and everything. It doesn't look humble. And yet it says he was the most humble guy on the face of the earth. And I think it's because he was willing, you know, the Lord called him and he said, okay, I'll surrender my whole life. I'm enjoying the sheep here, but I'll go with you for a cause or whatever, you know. He, he just cashed his whole life in to follow the Lord. Humble. Okay, uh, let's go to the Psalms in the middle of your book. Just read a few other scriptures about humility. There's a lot about humble very interesting. Oh, I want to tell you a little thing before we read this. It's just a fun little thing I noticed in my research. Didn't really come into Bible study. But uh, most things in Scripture have two 
values, you may know what I'm talking about, that let mountains can either be a good kind of mountain or a bad kind of mountain, or you can have good horses or bad horses or good Syrians or bad Syrians or whatever. But um, uh, I was looking at uh, talking about their heart is lifted up or they're lofty or haughty, that kind of thing, the opposite of humility. It's very interesting that in Scripture, if you look at the passages, I'll just assert this and we'll move on. But I was fascinated that lifting your hands is great. Do it all the time. Lifting your eyes, excellent. Do it every day. Lifting your voice is good in Scripture. Do practice that too. But lifting your heart is universally bad. Really interesting. But it means that you're puffed, you know, like the way that you see yourself, the way that you hold yourself. Swedenborg says there are all these spirits, you can often tell who the evil spirits are because they're way up on high. You know, they, and, and the angels are, are humble and they're just, you know, getting on with it or whatever. Uh, but but uh, lift it up is universally bad, as far as I could find. Lifting up your heart is universally bad in Scripture. Let's look at Psalm 147. That's just a little bonus. I throw that in for free. Uh, 147. <laughs> okay. Look at verse 6. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked down to the ground. Yeah, isn't this typical of Scripture? It's always saying things like this. There's so often a reversal. Those are first, last, last, first, and all this, you know. Uh, the, the Lord lifts up. See, that's good. That's great. When the Lord lifts you up, that's good. If you lift your own heart up, bad. Let the Lord lift you, you know, be humble and let the Lord lift you up. So the Lord lifts the humble, but he casts the wicked down to the ground. Uh, Look at Psalm 149, verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Yes, humility, it basically amounts to saying that humility is like a prerequisite for salvation. You know, there's a kind of humility that's important. He takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Now, uh, let's go to the New Testament, good friends. We'll go into the epistles again. Go through Luke and John and Acts and all that. We want to go through Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and we'll get to Philippians. And we'll just nail it. We'll just land right there on Philippians chapter 2. This is a a statement that Paul makes about Jesus and about having his mind, his his mindset. And what does he mean by that? 2 verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. Hmm. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Yes. I think that was what that meant that Moses was so humble is that he was obedient to the mission. You know, he, it wasn't like, well, I don't do windows or something. No, he, whatever it was, I do it. And, uh, and the Lord, even more so, he humbled himself, 
came into this world, he took on this lowly form and everything. He wasn't aggrandizing himself. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So that's the example in the Lord. Uh, turn to the right, and you'll go through some smaller epistles, and then you get to the Hebrews. Right after Hebrews is James. That's what I want, James chapter 4. And 4 verse 10. Seems to me I've heard some songs about this. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Yes, right? Really basic idea. Humble yourself before the Lord. Little tip. If you get an interview with the Lord, don't be overly arrogant in that exchange. You know, it's better to go humble uh, with the Lord. Let him lift you up. He, he will lift you up. He'll lift you up. But it's better to, to let the Lord do that. And turn to the right to First Peter. I want to go to First Peter 5. First Peter 5, let's read verses 5 to 7. Interesting that this also mentions the idea of younger and associating it with humility, which is part of what, you know, the servant of Elisha uh, being younger, and, and I'm taking him as a symbol of humility. Go on. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Clothed with humility. Yeah. In other words, to me, that means like constant, right? You know, just be clothed with humility. Go on. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud. The, the op opposition or something, the, the proud are coming, you know, there's opposition. But he gives grace to the humble. And then what's the, Peter's advice here? Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. I love that image. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That's, that's really beautiful to me. That he may exalt you in due time. It might not happen now, whenever, but you humble yourself under the Lord. Let him lift you up. Cast all your care on him, for he cares for you. Okay, so that magical moment in the evening has come in which I explain everything succinctly and compellingly. Um, so... <laughs> um, this image of the servant going out in the morning, uh, what I'm talking about, what I'm thinking about here is what attitude do we need to have to the Word? Lots of people, 800 million copies a year sell of the Bible. Uh, different people are reading it in different ways. What is a way of reading it that allows it to be that ladder to heaven, that allows us to see the Lord in it, allows us to see the angels in it? What is it? One thing we talked about last week was having the thoughts of heaven, thinking the same kinds of things that heaven is thinking about the text in terms of correspondences, layers of meaning and so on. And also the attitude of humility, I think, is really important not to sort of barge in and say, I know what all this is. Wow, it's just occurring to my mind. There's this great story in Swedenborg's works where uh, he's in the spiritual world. And I think it's a preacher. You know, a lot of the unfortunate people in the other world are, are preachers like me. And, uh, <laughs> and he goes, um, and there's some place Swedenborg says, it's a really cool sounding place, 
almost like a video game or something, where you have the word and this light is blasting out from it, and you can find out what people's attitude to the word is by taking them to this place. And you can see how they react to the word. And you are told, hey, if you're not thinking the right way about the word, you shouldn't even look at it because it'll be dangerous for you. And certainly don't touch the pages and don't, whatever you do, touch the writing. And this guy says, I have no problem. And he walks up and he strides up and he touches the word because he feels proud. He knows there's an explosion and he's blown into the corner and he lies as if dead for half an hour while the angels have a conversation. You know, he's just <laughs> out in the corner and they, <laughs> it's a bizarre story, but the, the angels have this whole conversation about the word and approaching it in, in humility. Uh, he did not approach the word in a state of humility and it really bit him in, in a big way. Uh, so approaching the word in humility which I see is like this young servant mentality, right? The young, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know what's going on in here. I'm trying to figure it out. I want to be open to the Lord's leading. I'm not coming in with a big arrogance like I know what this whole book says. I know this is so great. I have it all down pat. You know, the humility attitude. It's good anyway. It's a good way to approach any text, but it's particularly important here if we want to connect with heaven because that's the way heaven reads scripture. They have this tremendous humility before the Lord. So what does it mean exactly that Elisha, so they're being attacked by these armies, the Syrian armies, surrounded by these horses and chariots. So to me, that's a picture of being surrounded by interpretations of scripture or arguments in favor of one interpretation or whatever. But they're from all sides coming at you like, this is the way to read Scripture. You've got to read Scripture this way. You know, this is the correct understanding. You're not right. Uh, and wanting to get rid of this, the, this annoying man of God who's in the center of this thing. You know, the Lord who's, who's in it and the, and the salvation that's in there is bizarre. Um, but uh, so the servant goes out and then suddenly becomes aware of all these different interpretations and thinks, yipes, you know, what do I do? But his master, who is the Lord, Elisha is the Lord in the Word, right? So the master is the Lord present in the Word. He's the Word made flesh, and that's why Elisha is on the same level. He's not on the mountains. He's on the same level because the Lord is on the outermost level of the Word. He became, you know, flesh, in this world, he's all the way on the outside, and yet he's also God all by himself. He prays for the servant's eyes to be opened, and the servant sees that all around are the heavens, and all these people in heaven are understanding the love in it. They understand the love in it. Their teaching is accurate, and there's way more of them than there are of these Syrians coming in this way, in this world. Uh, there's way more. There's two things about this that are fascinating to me. One is that it's a picture of the Word. I think, open, you know, Elisha represents the Lord and the Word, opening his eyes. I mean, how do you connect with heaven? Jacob had his eyes open. He could see the ladder. He could see, oh, the Lord is all the way at the top of this. You know, I think we've got another story here about the Word 
uh, that his eyes are opened and he sees that there are angels who are reading scripture and they all have this accurate, didn't our hearts burn within us while he opened up the scriptures to us on the way? They have this burning understanding of the truth that's in the, that's in the text and the love that's in there. Another fascinating point about this, so his eyes are open to the heavens that are within the text. There's this whole heaven level in there, and there's more of that than there is this literal misinterpretation on the outside thing. But Swedenborg also says a fascinating thing about this. I guess I'll write on the board for those of you who are getting the video to try to explain this. He says there are higher heavens that are in love. I'll just write the word love up here in red. And then there's the middle heavens, which are in truth, meaning they're, you know, devoted to truth. And then I, I've known for a long time that those come down into this lowest heaven and that the lowest heaven, it's kind of like the heart and lungs or the two different spheres of the brain or something like that and how it comes down into the body, like you need something to contain that. So the lowest heaven is a container, but part of what this lowest heaven does is imagery. So the love and the truth that are present in the higher heavens come down in this amazing imagery all the time. So Swedenborg says when the prophets went to the spiritual world, when they see all these kind of things, you know, they see horses or they, they see angels with vials that are being poured out in the rivers or whatever it is, you're seeing representations in that world, in the world of spirits, uh, in that first heaven. And uh, um, I hope I can say this well. I uh, don't know quite how to put this into words, but what Elisha's servant was seeing, you know, I'm so steeped in the Swedenborg thing that I think, okay, it's a metaphor, the horses, chariots, they mean this, and the fire means this, and that means that. Swedenborg says, no, his eyes were open and he literally saw horses and chariots of fire because that's what you see in that world. That's what you see in the outermost layer of that world. You see horses and chariots of fire because of the love and the truth that's coming down into that lowest level. That's how it manifests on the lowest level. So he was literally seeing what goes on, you know, not a metaphor. He was literally seeing. In fact, what Swedenborg says about a lot of scripture is that scripture, you know, if you try to read it literally, it's a very funky book. We've had Bible studies before about how the clouds behave in most uncloud-like ways, you know, <laughs> and, and um, uh, lots of things like animals and various things don't, don't behave in ways that animals behave. Uh, mountains and hills don't skip uh, in, in our world, you know, jump up and down uh, like, like lambs and things like that. Uh, there's lots of things in Scripture that don't behave the way that things in our physical world behave. But Swedenborg says that those things literally happen in the spiritual world. See what I'm saying? So think about yourself. Imagine yourself like you're here and then you pass on into the spiritual world or you have some kind of vision and then you find yourself literally seeing horses and chariots of fire. And you think, weird, this is like that scripture story. You know what I mean? So part of what I'm trying to say is that one of the functions one of the ways that heaven, that, that the Word prepares us for heaven is by showing us what that world 
is literally like. We're not supposed to read it literally as literal in this world, but it is literal about the other world. Those things happen. There are seven-headed monsters. There are lambs that sit on thrones and, you know, all that kind of stuff happens. They're, they're still just correspondences. They're images. But that's what all this higher heaven stuff is contained in, is this imagery. And so one of the ways that Scripture is preparing us and having this world connected with the other is that we get to see it. Our eyes are open. You know, Elisha's prayer is answered. We can see. Didn't you see them? We saw the horses and the chariots of fire, right? On the mountains. And where are they? All around Elisha. They're not around the city. They're not around the other army. They're around Elisha. They're all around the Lord. The Lord brings the two worlds together where they're all reading in their sense. And if our eyes are open, we're seeing, oh, yeah, down here. We can see an accurate interpretation. There's lots of other people reading different ways or whatever, but it's possible to read that same way, to be down here. If we're humble, if we're young and teachable, you know, we can see uh, into that world and see things that are literally going on there. Um, so... Um, uh, to wrap this up, I would say that um, with humility and with the Lord's help, Elisha's servant can't do it by himself. He needs Elisha to show it to him. But with humility and the Lord's help, we can understand the word and we can even see heaven through it. All right, thank you, friends. Shall we close with a prayer? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. You are the Word, Lord. You followed the Word in your life in this world, and you became the Word, even under the outermost level. We thank you, Lord, for these stories. We thank you for your presence in the word. And we pray that you open our eyes, Lord. Open our eyes to see all those ways of reading your word, seeing the love in it, having accurate teachings, understanding who you are, how you're reaching out to everyone so that you can battle the hells that attack us and set us free. Thank you, Lord. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends, so we can see those chariots of fire ourselves.